This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Next week, federal weather forecasters with NOAA plan to roll out their predictions for the upcoming hurricane season, which runs from June to November. We checked in with FEMA's Bob Fenton. He heads Region 9, which covers the West Coast and the Pacific Island communities. We know that there's a new environment we're operating with with regard to COVID uh, being around. So we're starting to have the discussions now about you know, how do we shelter people in a COVID environment, especially on the islands where there's, you know, you can't really run from the event like you can on the mainland, at least go inland. And so, so how do we do that? How do we make sure that our people are safe? You want to make sure individuals have food, uh, water, and those kind of things for 14 days and, and make sure that they're ready. But uh, how do we make sure those people that need to shelter are also safe? And so those are some of the things we're working on right now. And the whole physical distancing thing just, you know, throws another monkey wrench in all this. Yeah, it makes it complex. You know, typically we see of those that shelter, it ends up being a little bit less than 10% of the population needs shelter that either don't have sturdy enough structures or need help right afterwards ends up being about 10%. And so those impacted from a hurricane. And, and so therefore, we're working on state storing personal protective equipment in our warehouse right now so that at least we can make sure people are safe. We're looking at other ways to do non-congregate sheltering or limit the number of people and, and social distancing shelters and those kind of things. So we're working very closely with Hawaii and ready to support their plans. On the mainland, we saw tornadoes whip through the area there, and, and I recall they were discouraging them from, from going to a shelter because there were no shelters set up in that area, and they were encouraging them to go, I think, stay with family or friends. I think that's a great point. If you can stay at your house and you have food and water, you should stay there, shelter there. If you have concern with regard to the structural integrity of where you live, then staying with individuals you know is probably the next best decision. There will be shelters that are available, and we are going to have to look at capacity of shelters and probably limit the capacity and take other measures to protect individuals that are in there to ensure that we don't transmit the COVID environment and create a uh, situation where it worsens the condition that individuals are in. And I think you folks in the Bay Area are kind of in the same stage that we are where people are still walking around wearing masks. Yeah, we are. We're very much in the same condition. Not only are we wearing masks, but we still haven't fully opened up yet, much like uh, I think uh, many locations just starting to open up some recreational activities, but have not yet fully opened up. I think it's going to be a, a new normal, and we're all going to have to adjust to that as far as making sure that we protect ourselves. So not only do you need to protect yourself, your family member, but uh, the actions you take uh, impact others. And so we need to, need to be wary of that and need to be smart on the actions we take and where we, you know, and how we take those. If there's anything that COVID-19 has done is people are taking stock of their supplies. Yeah, people are prepared and, and I think even more prepared or aware. I, I don't know about you, but my house, <laughs> my refrigerator is filled and, and uh, typically I come home when I get home late at night. If we're uh, anywhere less than half filled, my wife's figuring out how to reorder, you know, online and uh, asking me, you know, uh, what we should put in there. So I think everyone needs to be more aware of their resources. You know, one of the things we say is make sure you have 14 days minimum worth of food. You should have water, non-perishable food, things like battery-powered uh, radios or hand crank radios, you know, no weather radio. Make sure you have flashlights, a first aid kit, prescription medications. Of course, we all have hand sanitizer now. And then, uh, you know, cash is always important to have too. And then it's always a good time to we look at your flood insurance and, and other things that you could do to protect yourself beforehand. 
And I'm not sure if FEMA has already processed all the claims related to our lava inundation. Yeah, we have processed the majority of the claims. We uh, continue to work on claims for anyone that was that is not their home has not been able to be reaccessible because uh, not being able to put roads back into the area and those kind of things. But we've essentially assisted those that needed assistance. What we continue to work on is a lot of the public infrastructure projects in and around that area to re-put roads in place. But uh, as we know that there's still issues with temperatures of the ground and ongoing issues, so it, it, may, it limits the ability to rebuild quickly. And so we're working with the mayor, Kim over there and his team and making sure that we provide the resources and really understand how they want to rebuild you know, those, those roads and that infrastructure in that part of the island. And then with climate change and some of the more unusual and stronger storms and, and rain bombs that we've seen come our way. Yeah, in fact, we just had uh, heavy rain over on Kauai and the, the governor requested a declaration from us. So we're doing assessments for that right now. Uh, a lot of road damage, damage from slides and, and quick moving water and those kind of things. So we're looking at that right now for a potential declaration that he requested from the president. But sometimes when you live in a beautiful place, you got to, you know, accept the risks that come with that. And out here in California, it's the risk of earthquake. In Hawaii, it's, uh, you know, especially with uh, uh, high mountains, it's fast-moving water uh, in flood areas. It's uh, things like hurricanes and tsunamis, and we just need to be ready for that uh, individually. And that means not only having your kit ready, but... Uh, having flood insurance. It means uh, having a communication plan to talk to uh, your family members to be able to ensure everyone's safe, making sure that you live in a in a house that's structurally safe. If not, do things like invest and get typhoon clips or other things that could make your home more structurally safe. Any sense on, on you know, whether the CARES Act it will include, you know, additional funding for FEMA and HAIMA? There's definitely a lot of funding within the CARES Act already. In fact, I had a call yesterday with all the different directors of different federal agencies will be bringing resources to Hawaii and uh, talk to them about the different authorities and how do we integrate those and leverage those to help Hawaii. We know that because of COVID and, and not only what it's done to the Hawaii economy by having to shut down its borders and tourism and those kind of things, the impact it's had on it. But we know that COVID's around till, until there's a vaccine. And that means that that even with reopening, there will still be limitations and impacts. And what we want to do is make sure that all the federal resources that Hawaii needs, whether it's testing supplies, whether it's being able to do surveillance, uh, you know, uh, and contract tracing so that if someone does get positive, we limit the spread, uh, whether it is uh, having warm-based uh, additional medical capability, uh, whether it is, you know, SBA loans, whether it's other infrastructure projects to help get the economy going, we want to make sure all those resources are available and ready to go when Hawaii can start uh, opening back up again. And, and that's kind of what we're focused on right now. Construction has continued on, at least for essential facilities, and a lot of the infrastructure that's been damaged in past disasters in Hawaii or California are critical facilities, their roads, their bridges, their critical buildings, hospitals, those kind of things. So we've continued on with much of that, but it, it does limit our ability to be out there. But FEMA has probably close to 4,000 people responding to COVID across the country, and we have about 20,000 people in FEMA. So we're ready for this hurricane season. We're ready for this fire season here in California, Arizona, Nevada. We have the personnel and resources adequately to respond to that. We just need to make sure that we do it smartly. And you have been doing lots of planning 
for COVID, at, you know, and, and the response, because everybody was concerned about the curve. The curve is bent because of leadership at the governor level, at the mayor level, and at the individual level, you know, the Hawaii system. They all have to be working together to bend that curve, and we've seen that happen in the Pacific Islands first, meaning that they were early to start bending the curve. And even places like CMI is now completely flattened, and they haven't had a new case for two weeks. So a lot of credit goes to everyone, you know, from the governor to the mayors to the public for listening, social distancing, being safe about how they uh, operate. With regard to our preparedness, there's a lot of measures we put in place, a lot of resources we've brought to Hawaii, additional medical capability. We've assess facilities to expand medical capability. We've done a lot of work with DOD and PACOM, uh, Indo-PACOM, who's a, who has a tremendous capability out in the Pacific, partnering with them and other federal agencies to have resources ready on standby. We're not going to stand those down. We'll continue to have those ready, not only for COVID, but for hurricane season, as you said. Uh, and, and we'll continue in that type of operational effort all the way through vaccination. And I've been FEMA now for 24 years. My first disaster was a flood in Hawaii and on Oahu. And I've spent probably years of my life between Hawaii, Guam, and CNMI. What I've learned over the time is uh, even more so in the Pacific Islands, when those hurricanes and typhoons and cyclones come, they take the weirdest movements in their trajectory. And we start getting fixated on a straight line, and uh, you never know. So really, at the end of the day, it just takes one. And that's what I would tell everyone is... Make sure you take appropriate action, you know, when there's a threat, when the weather service comes out, when the governor comes out and says, take the appropriate actions, make sure you are safe and make sure you protect yourself and your family and make sure you have adequate resources ready for that event. Because you never know, I can't tell you how many I've been in where I thought it was going to go south and all of a sudden it hooked and, and went right into Guam or Hawaii. Uh, and so we got lucky last year with Hurricane Lane, but it can happen just the opposite, just as quick. So uh, just be ready. It only takes one. Okay. And I know they've been, as part of their messaging, saying might be a while, if it's bad, it might be a while before you get government assistance. So you got to kind of hunker down and take care of yourself, take care of your na- neighbors and, and be ready to like ride it out. Yeah. I think the, the most difficult thing, you know, about the Pacific is that long logistical lines to get there. And if we can't get the ports open right away, then you're left with airports only once you get those open and you can't really bring a lot of resources in through the air so it's critical to have those seaports back open and logistically the lines of the the distances make it just more difficult to move resources quickly uh, into the Hawaiian Islands that's why the additional time as far as 14 days being ready for is out there because we recognize that it will take more time to bring resources. It's not as easy as driving across the state line from California to Nevada or uh, Arizona uh, on a freeway. So you just need to be proactive and be ready and be vigilant. That was FEMA's Region 9 Administrator, Bob Fenton, talking about disaster preparedness during this COVID time. NOAA will be announcing its hurricane forecast next week. And it's now time to take a look across the globe where European countries are starting to ease out of lockdown. Despite a steady rise of COVID-19 numbers in Russia, the government will gradually begin exiting from restrictions this week. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday, the 11th of May. I'm Alex Ritson. President Putin says Russia will begin a gradual exit from its coronavirus restrictions despite a record daily increase in infections. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been defending his plan for the easing of the lockdown in England. 
The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has announced a gradual lifting of coronavirus restrictions from Tuesday despite a steady daily rise in the number of cases. From Moscow, here's Steve Rosenberg. For six weeks, the Kremlin has been telling Russians to stay at home to help slow the spread of the coronavirus. Today, Vladimir Putin said the nationwide economic shutdown would end on Tuesday. But the president added there would be no rapid exit from lockdown. It would be gradual, cautious, and it will be up to Russia's local governors to decide the level of restrictions still required in their individual regions to tackle the virus and protect lives. Earlier, Russia recorded a record daily increase in coronavirus infections. It is now the third most affected country in terms of confirmed cases. Britain, one of the country's worst hit by coronavirus, has published details of its plan for a gradual relaxation of its lockdown. The government recommends that people wear face coverings in enclosed spaces. It's also outlined longer-term conditional plans for reopening schools. Speaking in Parliament, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, said it was important not to reopen the country too soon. There could be no greater mistake than to jeopardise everything we've striven to achieve by proceeding too far and too fast. We will be driven not by hope or economic revival as an end in itself, but by data and science and public health. And so the government is today submitting to the House a plan which is conditional and dependent, as always, on the common sense and observance of the British people and on continual reassessment of the data. The leader of the opposition Labour Party, Keir Starmer, repeated his criticism of the government proposals, saying they lacked clarity and did not equally apply to all parts of the United Kingdom. He also said the Prime Minister's planned quarantine for people arriving from abroad was confusing. Meanwhile, across continental Europe, millions of people are adjusting to a gradual easing of coronavirus restrictions. In France, many businesses and shops are starting up again as it slowly emerges from nearly two months of a strict lockdown. Adnan Lajmi is a driving instructor in Paris who runs his own driving school. When will he be returning to work? I'm supposed to go back to work on Thursday, but I'm still thinking of if it's safe or not. I'm going to be driving like with uh, new students, students we don't know if they, they have the coronavirus or not. The government asks us to wear masks. It won't be enough. The student is going to touch the wheel drive, he's going to touch the, the stick shift, he's going to touch a lot of stuff. Even after we're done the driving, I have to clean the car. It won't be enough. In Spain, measures have been loosened for half of the population who live in less badly affected areas. Cafes and restaurants have reopened outdoor terraces, but at greatly reduced occupancy. The World Health Organization has urged governments to lift coronavirus lockdowns only if they are sure they have the epidemic under control. The warning comes after South Korea, Germany and China experienced an increase in infections after they relaxed restrictions. The Chinese city of Wuhan, where the coronavirus pandemic began, has confirmed a small cluster of new locally transmitted infections. The authorities believe the cases are centred on a single housing compound. Here's our correspondent, Robin Brandt. They are the most significant increase in new cases uh, for an eight-week period now, in fact, and the lockdown was lifted at the beginning of April. They are small in number, five, and they are believed to be concentrated in a single housing compound and linked to an 89-year-old man who first fell ill with COVID-19 actually back at the end of March.
Sioux tribes in the American state of South Dakota are refusing to remove coronavirus checkpoints they set up on roads which pass through their land. The state governor says the checkpoints are illegal, but the chairman of the Cayenne River Sioux tribe, Harold Frazier, said they would not be backing down. We live in north-central part of South Dakota. It's basically middle of nowhere. The nearest health facility is a three-hour drive for critical care. There's probably about over 10,000 residents here that live on a reservation. So if we were to have a massive outbreak, you know, where are they going to go? We know that if it was to ever hit our reservation, it's going to be really detrimental to a lot of our people. We're definitely uh, not going to back down, and we are doing it to save lives. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now to play our backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we look at famous surf breaks. Landmarks are common names for surf breaks, so many in Honolulu have been named after businesses and homes of people who are or once were directly living on shore. For example, there's concessions at Ala Moana Beach Park. That's directly in front of the concession stand built back in the 1970s. It's currently operated by L&L Hawaiian Barbecue. There's also Brennicke's at Poipu Beach Park on Kauai, named after the plantation doctor, Marvin Brennicke. He had a house on the beach that he built in 1936. Hurricane Eva destroyed the home in 1982, and he never rebuilt it. Then there's Tongs, named for Rudy Fa Tong. He owned a home on Kalakaua Avenue from 1946 to 1961. His sons, Michael and Ronnie, surfed, and they named the break by their home Tongs. But Rudy Tong was a famous businessman in his own right. For today's quiz, we want to know what airline did Rudy Tong found. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home.
Hawaii literally wrote the book on preparing for natural hazards here in the Pacific. Hawaii's Homeowner's Handbook is now available online as a digital download. The handbook has been used as a model for many communities across the continent and in countries across the Pacific. Dennis Wong is on the faculty at NOAA's Sea Grant Program and is one of the co-authors. He spoke with us about what's new in this fourth edition. This book originally covered hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, and, and tsunamis, and this year, the book, we reprinted it in January of 2020, and it covers also climate change and volcanoes. In addition, there are a lot of new retrofit options for strengthening homes for hurricanes, because you know, hurricane risk continues to be the major threat for most of the islands. That's what we really want people to prepare for. And then the third major thing about the new book is a lot of the measures they're not only resilience measures in that they try to make the home or a part of the home stronger, but they also have a sustainability and adaptation part to it. So like, for instance, for roofs, you want to have a strong roof. You also want it to be a cool roof, so it's environmentally sustainable, uses less energy for air conditioning, and therefore has less of a carbon footprint. So there's a resilience and a sustainability and an adaptation component to a lot of the measures in the new book. The key thing is there are a lot more retrofit options for homes and also a lot of the measures, not only to make your home stronger, but also environmentally sustainable and to reduce the carbon footprint. Some of the measures you could do yourself, we do recommend that people see first a licensed architect or a licensed engineer before they do any work themselves. But once they get initial guidance, they could do a lot of the measures themselves. And in terms of making the home expensive, if they if they do some of the work themselves, it, it won't be that expensive. If they hire a contractor, there will be some expense. The other thing to consider though, it's like an investment in your house because you're making your house stronger. And we know many instances where people have tried to sell their house and because they have some of these measures to make them stronger, it makes it a much more attractive house to sell. So whether you're talking hurricane clips or tie downs? Yeah, hurricane clips, window protection, you know, a stronger roof, all of those things. We found that when people list those items, when it comes time to sell the house, it adds value to their property. Since the book came out in 2007, up till around two or three years ago, we were protecting our house with plywood when there were potential incoming events. But I found that I was traveling a lot on the mainland teaching, and when there were some threatening events, it was hard, you know, impossible for me to do any of those measures. So we did put impact-resistant glass and impact-resistant windows into our house. These are one of the things they... Have the, they're a little more expensive, but uh, they're um, one of the things that add value to the house. It provides year, always in place security from a hurricane or a robber, and it also um, uh, makes the house cooler, so it reduces energy costs and um, adds, adds one of those things that will add value to the house, so you can consider it as an investment for the house. You don't actually need hurricane force winds to 
to cause a lot of reef damage. It could happen with a tropical storm force winds, which are winds under 74 miles per hour. That's the threshold for a hurricane. So you can have a lot of reef damage with the winds that are in the 50, 60 mile per hour range. But that just shows the importance of doing the retrofits. And the first thing we recommend for older homes, specifically for homes on Oahu, the first thing we recommend is that they put in hurricane clips to attach, to tie their wall to the roof. You know, over the years, you've talked about make your house strong before you make it pretty. That's right. When you do some of these retrofits, they could be possibly one-tenth to maybe 25% of like a kitchen remodeling or a bathroom remodeling, and what you're doing is you're making your house strong. When Hurricane Lane threatened the islands in 2018, you know, we were very fortunate that the system veered to the west and dissipated, which is it was very unusual, but they estimate that if it did hit Oahu as a Category 2, over 50,000 houses on Oahu would be damaged or destroyed. So hopefully that'll never happen, but it's good to make sure people prepare for the worst and hope, hope for the best. And that's what you're doing because the hurricane retrofit, the, the hurricane clips, it's a fairly simple retrofit. It's not that it's not that much. And we do know instances where insurance companies will offer discounts for uh, putting in the hurricane clips. So that's why you sell tell people make your house strong first and pretty. We don't want people to think it can't happen here. So if they understand the risk, maybe it will build a sense of urgency and motivate them to act. And then we also go over the retrofit options. And we'll also go over a little bit about about evacuation planning. Um, There's also one thing I want people to consider, too. You may be able to shelter in your house for COVID-19, but sheltering in your house for COVID-19 and sheltering in your place in your home for a hurricane is totally different. And uh, the stronger you make your house, the more likely you will be able to shelter in your house during an event. And you won't have to go to a public shelter where social distancing would be almost very difficult to do. That was Sea Grant's Dennis Wong talking about the updated Hawaii Homeowners Handbook. It'll be part of a national webinar hosted by the Boulder Natural Disaster Center in Colorado. It takes place tomorrow, Tuesday at 7 a.m. Hawaii time. Check out our website for links to find out more. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. Monthly online info sessions are available for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Our reality check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat spotlights the effect of this health crisis, COVID-19, on Pacific Islanders. Chad Blair joins us this morning to share more on the ongoing coverage of COVID-19. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Happy uh, New Week. (laughs) Yes, I know. I can't believe it's already, you know, mid-May. I know, I know. 
Well, so tell us about this story. The, uh, you folks actually ran it this weekend. Yeah, for people who follow Civil Beat, or if you don't, we're actually uh, publishing seven days a week now. We have been now for two months, ever since the COVID crisis really really peaked and the stay-at-home orders have been uh, in place and so forth. And uh, But we've also found that a lot of people are eager to read and learn more about what's happening with COVID, even on the weekend. And this story is from Anita Hofschneider. And she takes a look at uh, not just uh, Pacific Islanders, but that would include Native Hawaiians as well, and how there appears to be uh, a greater chance of people in these groups getting COVID-19. And she didn't just look at Hawaii. She, she really cast a wide net. She looked at a, a number of states across the nation. So even though Pacific Islanders, Native Hawaiians, are just a fraction of, over the, of the overall U.S. population, there does seem to be some data that indicates their numbers proportionally when it comes to getting COVID are higher, much higher in some cases. And I believe it was, uh, what, a number of researchers at uh, the uh, University of Hawaii uh, Johnny Burns of medical school, right, that initially we're looking at these numbers. Right. And we should say that here in Hawaii, we're not quite seeing a significant uh, a disparity uh, in large part because our case uh, numbers have been pretty low. I mean, still pretty bad at 630 or so, but not a terribly disproportionate when you look at the, the overall population numbers. But boy, if you look at a place like Northwest Arkansas, where there's a lot of Marshallese working in the poultry factories there, Anita actually opens her story with a, a worker at Tyson uh, who gets sick uh, working in this factory. And and before you know it, uh, more than 40 people in that community of about 13,000 or more in northwest Arkansas have got COVID-19. That is definitely more than proportionally, right, per capita compared to the rest of the Arkansas population. And we've also been hearing, of course, just about meat factories in general across the country seeming to have a greater problem with these breakouts. You know, I did reach out to the uh, Marshallese uh, consulate last week mm. in Arkansas, and I was told that uh, they actually have like a COVID committee, you know, yes. to track some <laughs> of this down. Because, you know, they were saying that it, it could be like some 8,000 uh, Marshallese that are working in these, uh, you know, the Tyson chicken plants. Or, so it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. And so how do you help resolve that when you form these uh, local committees to help these outreach groups? Well, language translation has uh, is a is really a big factor, making sure that the non-English speaking members uh, in the Marshallese community get the actual facts. Also targeted testing, making sure that they're able to go to clinics and hospitals and, and get those those numbers. Remember that a lot of Pacific Islanders, Native Hawaiians included, uh, live in multi generational households right so that's a sometimes that's a greater chance to spread the disease there are also um, underlying health conditions that particularly affect these groups that make you more uh, susceptible to getting sick you know diabetes hypertension there's a high obesity factor as well so this only adds to the anxiety that maybe these groups are going to be suffer suffering disproportionately from COVID-19. Right so it's really important to to track this and I know uh, it's actually thanks to the the census count uh, that we know that there is this, you know, large population of Pacific Islanders, you know, in Arkansas. Uh, right. So and it's not just Arkansas, I should say, uh, according to uh, Anita's data, she's actually got a little graphic on her story, which is up on her website. Uh, the worst, highest death rate for uh, Pacific Islanders, including Native Hawaiians, is in Los Angeles. Uh, Oregon has just about the worst rate. And I can tell you from my own reporting, there are large concentrations of Pacific Islanders, Native Hawaiians uh, in those communities, also Alaska and Colorado and Utah and Washington State. 
Yeah, I think uh, in those communities, though, uh, I'm sure you, you know, you've got those specific islanders spread out uh, in sure. those states where, you know, if you're talking like Arkansas, for some reason, they just all go and work at Tyson. <laughs> yeah, they go there because there's jobs and there's just not a whole lot of economic opportunity back in the Republic of the Marshall Islands. And, you know, as you well know, they can do that under the COFA treaties with the United States. But I think Anita's main point is this is sort of an overlooked group anyway. Um, are they more at risk to COVID? And if so, how can we really reach out and help them not get sick or at least when they do get sick, get the help that they need? Right. And you want to make sure that they've got all the protective gear, the masks, uh, exactly. you know, within those uh, uh, factories where they may, they may be working. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating story. Thank you so much, though. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Head to civilbeat.org to get more in-depth coverage. Working from home? Many of us are, and we might be feeling a lot more back pain, neck tightness, and joint stiffness than ever before. Could posture or sitting around a lot play a role? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a physical therapist about how to stay flexible and strong no matter where you are. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. You know, this past week, we spoke to the presidents of three Hawaii universities to get a sense of how our learning, higher learning institutions are adapting to the change brought on by this ongoing health crisis. While much of the planning comes from the top-down, students have had to move their entire learning experience online. That change has come easy for some and much harder for others. Here's what one of our listeners had to say about virtual learning. My name is Josh from Waianae. And I was just listening to uh, the conversation where the guy was talking about transferring um, classes to more online classes going into the future. And I just wanted to say, um, you know, I graduated from UH last year or last semester, and I, I still talk to a lot of students. And I think that there's a real general consensus that a lot of people prefer going to classes and being there in person as opposed to just being there online. It's, um, it's a lot more difficult concentrating and staying engaged. And I, I don't want it to be, um, you know, downplayed how important going to class in person is. Another listener called in uh, to talk about those workers who aren't quite first responders but are still taking an active role in the health and well-being of those in our community. This is Mark. I'm calling from Honolulu. I'm a VIP uh, medical driver for our company. We keep hearing about first responders and police and nurses and doctors, but we also, those of us that drive patients to medical facilities every day, uh, are not really first responders, but we are definitely concerned public members. And I'd appreciate it if you'd note that on your program. Uh, our company, VIP, has had to pretty much close down our tourist section, but our medical side is up and running, and we're very busy uh, taking people to dialysis, especially in cancer treatment centers. Thank you. Thank you again for your program. 
And finally, we share a bit of generational culture shock. On a recent Backyard Quiz, we asked listeners to dig through the back catalog of Hawaii-born singer and songwriter Glenn Medeiros. This gave one listener the chance to share some music and some memories with her daughter. Hi, this is Jody. I'm calling from Honolulu, and I just wanted to say I listened to your Backyard Quiz, and my daughter is a student at Marino, and she had no idea who Glenn Medeiros was. Or, well, I mean, of course she knows who he is now, but she didn't know who he was then. So I played her a bunch of his clips, and she was just so floored, completely floored. Anyway, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the memories. <laughs> Bye-bye. And thank you very much for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our talkback line 792-8217. Just fade away like This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now check in with your Monday Stargazer, where we hear about new research originating from Hawaii Island. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny and very troubled planet. As usual, we are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we turn to him now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, Stargazers, look out for Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in the south before dawn. And also, don't forget that Venus can still be seen in the western sky during sunset. The moon this week is passing its last quarter phase, and so skies will get darker as the week goes on. Now, there's a bright spot again during the pandemic. Apparently, you've got some more local fruitful research happening on Hawaii Island. Indeed. Spectacular images of Jupiter have been obtained by the Gemini North Observatory on Mauna Kea. These images were captured using an instrument called NIRI, or the Near Infrared Imager. And the high-resolution images show features that would normally be invisible to us as they are obscured in the visible spectrum by Jupiter's dense clouds. These incredible images reveal the turbulent nature of the forces that drive Jupiter's weather and give us a glimpse into the inner workings of this giant of the solar system. And explain to us how these images relate and connect to the weather on Jupiter. Well, weather is driven by heat on all planets. Here on the Earth, solar radiation warms the Earth's crust, resulting in changes in air temperatures, pressures, and density, and that creates our weather. It's no different on the outer planets, except that the sun is not the driving force. The heat that drives their weather is internal. It comes from within. Uh, So that's why seeing it in infrared is so important. And as for the origins of the heat itself? Well, as I said, the heat is internal. You see, Jupiter is contracting ever so slowly at about two centimeters per year. And this gravitational contraction releases vast amounts of energy that drive the internal heat mechanisms. 
And that means that uh, if mankind survived several hundred more years, theoretically, that uh, Jupiter would look a lot smaller with all this contraction, or is it not going to ever be noticeable to the naked eye? It probably wouldn't be noticeable because <laughs> Jupiter is just so vast. And back to the infrared, and so using that kind of technology, we can also, in a way, kind of get an idea about what's driving weather on other planets, too. Exactly. Yeah, it's key to understanding the weather, and it gives us a glimpse at the hidden mechanisms beneath those thick clouds that we see on gas giant worlds. And, in a way, I guess we can become astrometeorologists. And get a little bit more closely connected to our solar system. With you, Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week for Stargazer, which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Kohala High School STEM and Science Facility on Hawaii Island, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we looked at surf breaks and how they got their names. Take tracks and depots, for example, on Oahu's Leeward Coast, named after landmarks from Oahu Railway and Land Company's train service. There's Sheraton's on Molokai, named after the now-shuttered Sheraton Molokai Hotel. Then there's Tong's on Oahu's South Shore, named after Rudy Fa Tong, who owned a home by the break. Tong owned his own publishing company, but he also started Trans-Pacific Airlines in 1946. The story goes he wanted a competitor to inter-island carrier Hawaiian Airlines, which had at times rejected him and other passengers of Asian descent from flying. The new company offered special appeal with in-flight entertainment featuring singing, hula dancing, and ukulele playing flight attendants. In 1958, the company changed its name to Aloha Airlines. And before it shuttered in 2008, the airline flew to destinations in North America and the South Pacific. And congratulations to David Masunaga. You got it right. David is a high school teacher still teaching online. We are happy that you listen to Hawaii Public Radio. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, it looks like the King Kong or T-Rex of bees has made its way into Canada and Washington State. The Asian hornet uh, has been uh, has been nicknamed the murder hornet and has been grabbing headlines along the way. Darcy Oishi is with the Department of Agriculture's Plant Quarantine Division. His fascination with the murder hornets dates back to his days working at Bishop Museum, where its insect collection includes specimens of these giant hornets. I like big, beautiful insects. And these guys are, they're marvels of evolution. When you look at adaptations that hornets have made go after bees, Asian honeybees have evolved certain behaviors to deal with these hornets that European honeybees don't have. So it's just a marvelous set of interaction. 
and, and it's just amazing. I am fascinated by any insect that can go into a social insect's nest and just kick butt. Well, you love them, but uh, as we're seeing more of these images, uh, they're creeping people out. True. I mean, <laughs> it's a different invasive species. I mean, we've been battling the little fire ant that have a nasty sting, and these hornets have an equally nasty bite. So here's a interesting thing. If we were to look at the toxicity of a, these Asian giant hornets and compare them to a European honeybee, the standard honeybee that we all know and love here in Hawaii, the European honeybee is actually more toxic. Interesting. But what's happening is you've got a couple of key differences about a larger insect which can, which can deliver a much larger dose so I, I think it's close to three times the amount of venom can be injected in a single sting a european honeybee can only sting one time because the stinger actually comes off where a hornet can sting multiple times a hornet can actually because the stinger is longer can actually inject venom deeper into your tissue so if it can hit muscle tissue or get into your bloodstream, then the impacts get magnified. These hornets generally are not necessarily going to be aggressive as long as you don't disturb their nest or flog, swap them out of the sky. The, the real issue really concerns honeybees, or European honeybee, and the impacts that it will have on, if we, if we get a problem like this here in Hawaii, on our global impact on agriculture. So if we get these Asian giant hornets and their ability to decimate European honeybee hives, which is like favorite prey. I mean, this, these are honeybees are basically um, buffet lines for them of like all the prime material that you want to eat. And you got to go through all these workers to get to them. So the impacts really are we'll lose our ability to send bees to other all over the world for pollination, which means. You know, we, we lose a lot of the, our favorite crops um, and other byproducts from all of the pollination services that our bees engage in. This is not just honey production and the honey industry here locally, but we also export queen bees. We, we export queen bees, and that export of queen bees goes to the number one agricultural crop in the world, almonds. Beginning in February, our our, bee, our queens are landing in almond country and and, um, and impacting almond production. That's one point. I think it's one point eight billion dollars farm gate value. And that's just the start of the the annual cycle of impacts that Hawaii has on global agriculture. That that's a pretty big one. The concern of them hitchhiking over to Hawaii because of the Christmas tree industry from the Pacific Northwest. Talk about those concerns. You know, right now, Washington Department of Agriculture is taking a lot of very prudent and wise steps in terms of assessing what their problem is. As we learn more, our level of concern increases the closer it gets to the Christmas tree regrowing region of Washington and Oregon, which, which is the largest contributor to our holiday experience from the continent. As these hornets, if they've, if they've established, and Washington can't confirm establishment yet, uh, if they enter in the zone, then the chances increase that we're likely to get it in here in Hawaii. It's going to be very difficult to take care of, so prevention is going to be our key angle of attack. I mean, this is a this is an insect that 
in travel, you know, over 20 miles. There's varying reports on the distance that it, it can fly, but it's fully capable of flying between islands. Wow. It, it would be hard to stop once we find it. Once a detection is made, we're going to have to hit the ground running. That was Darcy Oichi with the State Agriculture's Plant Quarantine Branch. He was talking about the potentially devastating impact that the murder hornets could have on the country's agricultural industry if it gets into the islands. The hornets are known to decapitate a whole hive of honeybees. Hawaii exports queen bees across the country, which is key to fertilizing crops. State inspectors will be monitoring the 2020 Christmas tree shipments for the murder hornets. So while uh, so far none has turned up, uh, but the state has found other invasive hornets hitchhiking in those shipping containers. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Hawaiian Bank, launching its Aloha for Hawaii program, supporting Hawaii's restaurants and nonprofits providing food, health, and human service programs. FHB.com slash Aloha, member FDIC. This Tuesday, it's popular romantic pieces by French composers Saint-Saëns and Franck, performed by Hawaii's own symphony orchestra. Violinist Tessa Clark makes her HSO debut in this special encore broadcast, Tuesday at 8 p.m. on HPR2, your home for classical music. Sponsored by Mid-Pacific Institute. Well, that is it for today. Tomorrow, we hear more about success and failure during the pandemic of 1918, a tale of two Samoas. Ready or not, well, do you feel safe enough to venture out and mingle more now that stores and shops are starting to open? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived there. Find them on the Conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.